Okay, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. I think most of you know we're in an Old Testament series called Relevant. We're looking at the relevance of the Old Testament. In 35 weeks, we'll take you on a journey to give you a foundation, listen, of the Bible that Jesus knew and read. So hopefully you're reading ahead. We have resources out there for you. I want to make two teaching points as I start. Um, Today we're looking at the flood of Noah. This is kind of a sweet spot for me. I've been studying this all my life. It has prophetic implications and such. And I can't do it justice in 35 to 40 minutes. Um, So we're going to have a QA and a today out in the table at 1030. You'll have time to get a cup of coffee and you can ask me anything you want about what we're covering, uh, about church, the pandemic, the election, anything like that. And uh, we'll just give you ESPN highlights tonight on Noah's Flood or today. And then the other thing is people are asking, Pastor Bob, you ever going to talk about the election? Um, well, we don't endorse candidates. We don't, we're not partisan here. But next week in the call of Abraham, uh, I am going to talk about nations and biblically, how does God look at government? For those who are readers, uh, there's a book I just finished called The Virtue of Nationalism by uh, Mr. Hazani, who is not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's a Jew who lives in Jerusalem, who has written what I think is just a profound book on how God looks at government. He's a New Testament scholar. He's an economist. Uh, If you want to get above the fray of partisan politics, um, it's an excellent read, and it will set you up for what we'll talk about next week. Uh, Today, we're in Genesis chapter 6. Let's read several verses, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, uh, that that daughters were born to them, and that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them, mighty men of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved or brokenhearted. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Um. Someone reading scripture for the first time might be utterly surprised how quickly things change. You know, you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, God creates this wonderful world in six days, and there's a phrase every day where God says it's good, and on the sixth day it's very good. God looks at everything he created, it was very good, and God rests on the seventh day. Five chapters later, we see that phrase again. This time, God saw the violence and the wickedness that was upon the earth, and he was sorry that he had made man, and God now is about to wipe man from the face of the earth. So theologians call this the downward spiral of sin. We've talked about this sin, which can start so small, can wreak havoc, and in the end bring death, just as God said it would. Adam and Eve, who were given this world of abundance, this world where they had God and everything in it, 
They weren't content with what they were given. They lusted for something greater. And you and I have to be careful of that because that is the seedbed of sin, right? We're not content with the things that we have. We're, we're kind of lusting for something that's out there. There's a promise of something greater. Adam and Eve weren't content with God himself. They wanted to be superior. They wanted to be like God. And we got to be on guard for this because it's everywhere, right? Uh, we're the first generation to live in the age of advertising, which is all based on what you and I don't have. And if we had it, how much better our lives would be. One author said Adam and Eve exchanged the guarantee of intimacy, the intimacy with each other and God for the lust of supremacy, to be like God. Uh, that one decision, which probably is the worst decision of all time, uh, has wreaked havoc in the human race uh, all the way up until our time. We are living in the aftershocks of this. Uh, look at the election season we're going through, right? Uh, if you live long enough, you'll hear the same things over and over again. So you come to work, you get a cup of coffee, and after a debate, and people say, is this the best we have to offer? We say that every four years, no matter who it is. And think about it. The idea that somebody's liberal or conservative used to be about fiscal policy. Were you liberally, you know, when it came to spending government money, were you a liberal conservative? Now it's all moral issues. And this is ex exactly what the promise was to be like God, is that instead of God being the arbiter of good and evil, now man would be like God. Now we have all these moral dilemmas. We have abortion, we have race, we have the economy. How to, man is at loss to even know how to govern himself. So we're looking at this downward spiral of sin. Think about it. For Eve, she needed a tempter. Cain, the evil just came from his heart and he murders his brother. Sin's getting a little more callous now. Uh, there's a phrase that really sets up this period. It's Genesis 4.16, if you have your Bible. It says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwelt in the land of Nod. And you might overlook this. It says that Nod was east of Eden. That phrase gets used quite often. And really what it's telling us is man is moving farther and farther away from God. If you know anything about the topography of Israel, maybe where the Garden of Eden was, it was the... Uh, Mediterranean Sea on their west, so now moving eastward is they're moving farther and farther away from God. Cain's offsprings go and build a city. And uh, really, as we look at Genesis 4 and 5, there's kind of a lost world we know very little about. Now, it's a 1,500-year period. It's quite long. And if you read through, you can bring things out of civilization and culture. They had music and craftsmanship. But again, you know, people are leaving the presence of God. There's one brief and shining moment in chapter uh, 5 where we see this man named Enoch. He only gets a few verses. It says, Enoch lived 65 years. This is Genesis 5.21. And he begot Methuselah. Uh, you all know about Methuselah? He's the longest man that ever lived. He lived longer than anyone. When you see him in heaven, ask him what that was like over 900 years and Enoch walked with God 300 years, had sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Wow, what does that mean? Now again, a few short verses, but he makes his way into the New Testament. He makes his way into the hall of faith. Hebrews 11.5 says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Wow. So that's taken one, right? Enoch goes to heaven. Taken two, 
Elijah goes to heaven. He never died. Taken three is Paul went to heaven. Remember Paul went to the third heaven? Uh, but Paul came back again. What a drag that was. Then he had to die, right? Uh, I hope to God they never make a taken four. Oh, my goodness. But taken four in the Bible, this may be a hint at the rapture, you and me. Before God brings judgment, i.e. the flood or what we know about the end times, that believers may be taken out of here, and we've taught extensively about that. It's also a first hint at heaven, the afterlife, that when man dies, there's a place to be taken. Um, Enoch had this testimony in Hebrews. I love this. He pleased God. You know, I don't, I don't know what that means. I really don't. He had this testimony. He pleased God. And I don't think he pleased God by keeping all the rules, and certainly obedience is a wonderful thing. You know, when I think of pleasing God, I think of Jesus. And how many times Jesus said, I have not seen faith like that in all of Israel. Often it was Gentiles that had this amazing faith. And I'm thinking that faith was so childlike. It was people believing, Lord, just send your word. It's enough and my servant will be healed. And I think that's the way you want to live and I want to live. That we want to have this childlike faith. We get to Genesis chapter 6. The Lord is grieved. He's heartbroken. And in verse 7, God's going to destroy man on the face of the earth. Now, we've got a little bit of a problem here. We call it the doctrine of divine judgment. I don't have a problem with it. If God created the world, he sets the rules, he can judge the world. The judge of all the earth, the Bible says, will always do right. Always do right. And we need to let it rest there. Uh, but people come along and say, well, how dare God do this? How dare God? Some people have a problem with God wiping out the animals. You know, we have a lot of animal lovers today. How could God wipe out animals? That's terrible. I'll answer that in the Q&A, just so you won't hate me until then. Uh, but I'll explain some of that. Um, I want to focus on something different. Instead of focusing on the judgment, I want to focus on this. Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. It's the first time the word grace appears. The first time any word appears is the most important. It sets up the rest of the Bible. Now, you and I traffic in grace, right? We're modern-day Christians. Grace changes everything. We're saved by grace. We're grace junkies, right? But grace finds its way in the beginning in the Old Testament. And I love what it says, Noah found grace. Now, a couple verses there tell us Noah's upright, and if you read the Hebrew, it just means he's a just man. He fears God. He walked with God. We, we get all that, right? But in no way does it say Noah was a perfect man. God didn't look down at the earth and say, well, every intent and thought is only evil continually of all these people. Ah, ha, but there is this one guy, Noah. He's a pretty good guy. It's not the way God looks at things. Noah looks down and grace is unexplainable. It's unexplainable to this point of all the people on a college campus. 37 years ago, why did God look down at me? and say, he's mine. E.V. Hill, now in heaven, is one of my favorite preachers of all time. Big black man with a booming voice, great intellect. And he has a, he has a sermon that I call the greatest sermon ever preached. It's called God at His Best. And only the way E.V. Hill can do it, he sets it up and he says, when was God at his best? And he goes through the creation story, and you're thinking, yeah, that was God at his best. And he ends that little snippet by saying, no, he done better than that. 
And he takes you to the Exodus. And then he takes you all the way through the Bible. And you finally get to Jesus and the resurrection. You're like, okay, E.V. Hill, you set me up. This is it. And he goes, nah, he done better than that. And he closes his Bible. And he says, God at his best isn't even in the Bible. He said, God at his best was in 1921 when God looked down in Seguin, Texas at a little eight-year-old boy who was lost and he became found. See, that's grace. God's unmerited favor. The idea that we could ever be good in the sight of God, the idea that we could ever work our way to heaven is so ridiculous. And Noah is kind of a picture of this, a narrative, a story of the Old Testament that brings it out. The ark is going to be a picture of Jesus carrying Noah, the God surrounded by God's grace. Everything ultimately brings us to Jesus who poured the ultimate grace out on us. Now, to get started on the flood, let me give you two New Testament verses. Mark them down. Uh, meditate on them. They are profound. The first comes from Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, you should know this. So, you need to know this. That scoffers, skeptics, will come in the last days, walking according to their lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? The second coming of Jesus is the greatest doctrine of the New Testament church. It's on almost every page. Almost every prophecy yet to be fulfilled. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, Peter says, they willfully forget. In other words, they've chosen to put this aside that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world then existed perished being flooded with water. Two things. We can talk a month of Sundays about this and we can talk about it in the Q&A. Peter's talking about the last days. Okay, now the last days started in an upper room in the book of Acts, remember? When the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter stood up and said, this will happen in the last days. The last days began at that moment, and we're living in it now. The question becomes, are we in the last of the last days? That's always the question, okay? Peter said, in the last of the last days, skeptics would arise, and they would look back at history, and they would take God out of the equation, and they would say, all things have always continued as they are. This is why when geologists look at the strata um, in geology of the Earth's crust, they come up with this idea of billions and millions years old, the fossil record and stuff. They, they have periods of time. Uh, th there is no table. There's no picture of that. That's them looking back saying, nothing's ever changed. This is what must have happened. Peter said, no, 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 no. When you look backwards, there was something that changed everything. A worldwide flood. The world before the flood was much different. Peter talks about in the water and out of the water. Most people believe there was a vapor canopy of water which would have protected the earth from ultraviolet lights which would have given us a greenhouse effect. Man would have lived longer. Plants would have been bigger like we found in the fossil record. Animals would have been larger like the woolly mammoth and dinosaurs. Um, Peter said, mark that down. Jesus said something more significant in Matthew 24. He said, as the days of Noah were so will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days of the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. Here's the important thing. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. When Jesus comes, it will not be a time of doom and gloom. It will be a time of peace, prosperity, and business as usual. Eating and drinking, giving in marriage. And judgment will be the last thing anybody expected. Are there any clues in Genesis 6 that we could be in the last of the last days? Let me give you four little clues. Uh, we already read the first one in Genesis 6.1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the earth. There are some scholars, and we have no way to check it, that believe this lost world, which was about 1,500 years, had maybe between 1 and 4 billion people. Uh, again, they look at longevity, people living longer, uh, the size of families there must have been. Uh, remember, disease and pandemics weren't happening then because uh, genetic breakdowns took a while to occur. But whatever you believe about that, think about this. The flood was somewhere around 1700 B.C. So that's a real long time ago, almost 4,000 years ago. But kind of put this in um, Put this in perspective. It took until 1867. There's a graph. Mike, put that graph up on the chart. It took, it took until 1867 to reach a population of 1 billion on the earth. 1867. Uh, by 1935, there were 3 billion people. Uh, look how that's going up. It's staggering. Uh, by 65, I was 3 years old. There were 3 billion people. 10 years later, 4 billion. The, the turn of the century, the millennium, 6 billion uh, right now, 2020, uh, when our census is done and around the world, we believe there's 7.8 billion. And by 2050, there'll be 10 billion people on the planet. Uh, I was in a bookstore and I, I bought this book, The Case for Thinking Bigger, 1 Billion Americans. And I purchased that book because it was so far out of anything I'd ever read that I thought, well, let me pick this up. And this gentleman makes a tremendous argument that China has, I think, 1.3 billion, India has a billion, that the countries with larger populations are going to win in the end. And that's what man still wants to do. He wants to win. And uh, this book makes a case for a billion Americans. By the way, a billion Americans would look like the topography of France. That's how much land we have. And the resources we could export and what we would buy and sell. So keep your eyes on that. The second thing that marked Noah's day was deviant sexual behavior. It says in verse 2 that when, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit won't strive with man forever. His days will be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they were mighty men of renown, men of old. Um, this is complicated. The Benai Elohim, the sons of God, only appear in Job. They're, they're, they're angels, they're fallen angels. So somehow the text is telling us that fallen angels had sexual relations with human beings and produced giants. Sounds like folklore, doesn't it? But... Uh, 
those were spiritually crazy times, right? Again, we'll get into it in the Q&A. You can go on the internet. Thank God for the internet. You can research this stuff for yourself instead of buying a boatload of books. Um, whatever was going on here was demonic. I think that's what we could agree on. The sexual relation is so pure and beautiful, it's the number one thing Satan always attacks. Andy Crouch gave a 16-minute Q talk that I think is one of the greatest talks I've ever heard. He takes an obscure passage in Romans, and it's brilliant. But he starts his talk out by talking about revolutions, how we had an industrial revolution, and we've all lived through a technological revolution. And, of course, Andy looks at culture, and he talks about how the breakdown of the family, and we've become isolated, and all the fallout of this. But Andy says something at the end of that talk that makes your hair rise up on the back of your neck. He said, we're not done with revolutions. He said, the next revolution will be biological, where life is no longer begotten, but it's made. Life will no longer be in the hands of God, it will be in the hands of man. And if you think of the extrapolation from the garden, that you can be like God's until where we live. If you've read widely in this area, it is scary. Cloning, and uh, a lot of this is being done around, you know, how about this word, science. Does anybody know that science has replaced God in our culture? We're living through the worst pandemic this nation's ever heard, and on national news and national programming, I still have not heard the word of God yet. Nobody says the word God, prayer, nothing, right? But we have this new word, science. Oh, and you know what's amazing about science? I thought science was factual, and now they change the rules every day. The goalposts move every day. Oh, no, no, there's new rules now about science. I'm not anti-science. If you read, you'll know that science and faith always moved along the same trajectory, and at different times, both of them were erroneous. One final thought here. When you think of little girls and little boys being molested, can I tell you that's demonic? You don't need angels cohabitating with human beings. The leap to that is demonic, and it's in our culture. Uh, Third thing we see is a pervasion of the mind. Look down at that phrase again. It's quite startling. God looked at the earth and every thought and every intent of man's heart was only evil continuously. Now, who's the only one that knows thoughts and intents of the mind? God, right? I don't know your motivations. I don't know your thought world. I can't see into your life, but God can. But you know, we can too now with the dawn of the internet. Do you ever get into the heart of the internet? Like I'm on no social media. I have people research this stuff for me. But every once in a while, I'll look at like a hot topic and look at a thread. Oh my gosh. The way people talk and treat each other, it, it breaks your heart. And then there's the dark internet and um, pornography and, I mean, a cesspool that we now can see the thoughts and intents of man's heart, and it's evil continually. One final point, and uh, you can make up your own mind on all this. Are we in the last of the last days? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. 
Now, if man's evolving and we have all this technology, why are we still violent? There's really no answer to that. Uh, right now, American cities are burning, and that's not liberal or conservative, and that's not based on what news you watch. It's reality. And I'll tell you why it's reality. I have colleagues around the world. So my friends from Russia and Kenya and, and even Britain say, Bob, what's going on in America? You know, you were the beacon of light. Your cities are burning, and you've got murders in all your major cities. Uh, my next-door neighbor, while my kids were growing up, my kids idolized this guy. He was a policeman. His name was Gary, and they loved Gary. Gary was not a Christian, but he was probably more of a Christian than most Christians. You know that deal. And uh, I'll never forget when we moved, we went back for a birthday party, and Gary's kids were older now, and they were in his basement playing video games, killing cops. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so far removed from this, but is this what's in video games? And you think about what's in our music, and we are a very, very violent culture. Now, in the midst of all this, Noah finds grace. He builds an ark, the animals come, there's a flood, and people are like, oh my gosh, can you really believe that in the modern age? And then every once in a while, people throw this one out to you. Oh yeah, it's just like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Stop saying that, you never read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Everybody quotes that, no one's ever read it. It does not read like this story, which has intricate details of building the ark and, and everything that God would do. By the way, the Epic of Gilgamesh was actually found in Megiddo, which is in Israel, but that's a whole other story. When we look at the details of what happened in Noah's flood, and by the way, Jesus and Peter believed in it. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. People, this was miraculous. Now, I'm going to take you through about a minute of uh, kind of factual things to help you with it, but there is no leap outside of this was a miracle. Let's talk about the animals. Uh, the scripture says the animals came to Noah. He wasn't running around catching butterflies. He wasn't a lion tamer. Like, you know, the, the, he wasn't on National Geographic. It's ridiculous, right? They came to Noah. Um, the building of the ark. Even the flood. Uh, from everything we know about meteorology, you couldn't have 40 days of rain, and that's not enough to flood the world. The vapor canopy disappears. That's tons of water. Mountains probably shot through the Earth's crust. Water came up there, 40 days of rain. You put it all together, it was a worldwide deluge. The ark was longer than a football field, wider than a basketball court, larger than the height of this building. Uh, there's a picture on the screen. Uh, that's my daughter and I in Kentucky at the Ark Museum. Ken Ham built the Creation Museum, and 20 minutes away outside of Cincinnati, uh, he built a life-size ark. Look at that. Bigger than the Titanic. Look at my daughter, and just, just the size of it is amazing. I was there in December, cold day in December. They had 13,000 visitors. They get over 80,000 a day in the summer. It's run like Disney World. And when you go inside the ark, they explain everything. And I love what Ken does. And by the way, Ken will be here. We're having a conference in February. We'll talk about all this stuff. But... Ken does a beautiful job. What he does is he puts what science says at every exhibit and what the Bible says, and he has this phrase, you choose. 
I think it's beautiful. What, a, what an invite for people. The ark had 1.4 million cubic feet. Now, this is all based on what the text says about a cubit. A cubit was about 18 inches. It could be larger. So we're taking the smallest it could have been. That would have been uh, able to hold 522 standard boxcars, like on a train. Scientists tell us there were 18,000 species in Noah's day. By the way, all the animals didn't have to be grown. Everybody realize that? Like, you didn't need the biggest elephant. You, you could take a baby elephant, a baby giraffe, right? Uh, some people say, well, how did they care for them all? Then maybe they hibernated, right? Again, God's in this, isn't he? Uh, 18,000 species. They tell us if you take all the species of the earth and drill them down, they're all about the size of a sheep. You would only need 60% of the ark for animals. So there was plenty of room. Again, it's still a miracle. We'll talk more of that in the Q&A, but let's look at Noah. Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. By faith Noah, and I'll paraphrase this, by faith, Noah took the life he thought he had for himself and he set it aside to follow something God gave him that he could not see. That's what we're called to do. You know, Noah had a lot more than we think. Civilization was quite advanced in that day. The one thing he did not have was an umbrella. It's not because umbrellas weren't invented. It's because it had never rained before. A mist went up and watered the earth. This man had to believe that God was going to bring a worldwide flood. He had to believe every animal would come. And he had to build an ark, basically a boat bigger than the Titanic, where there was no known rivers or waters. And he did it by faith. We're living in a time where 50% of God's church is paralyzed by fear. And for those of you still watching network for-profit entertainment news, which is basically all news on TV, what are you getting doused with every night is fear. Because fear sells. I know people in the industry, believe me. Every story is designed to keep you watching, to keep you fearful. And then you can't go open your Bible and say, God, fill me with faith. It doesn't work. Thank God one man set aside the things he could see for the things he couldn't see. And see, that's always the trade-off. See, we sell out for what we can see, but guess what? It all disappeared. It all got washed away. It's all going to get washed away for you and me. And so, man, again, faith moves the heart of God like nothing else. What's God speaking to you? What's God saying? What's God wanting you to say? What unseen out there? What preferable vision of the future has God called you to bring about? Uh, one of the things you're going to find in this Old Testament series that we go through is, is everything's a picture of Christ, even the things that are built. Uh, for instance, the tabernacle when we get to it, every rod, every piece of furnishing is a picture of Christ. It's going to be a fabulous study. So is the ark. Um, the ark had one door. There was one way in. Not many roads, not many doors. 
It had no rudder, no steering wheel, no anchor. Uh, one of my favorite verses in this story, uh, this is why I get paid because you would have overlooked this. Chapter 7, verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Can I ask you a question? If I tell you to come into my house, where am I? I'm in the house. But if I tell you to go in like the NIV, where am I? I'm outside. Stick with the new King James. God said to Noah, come into the ark. See, God would be their protection. God's presence would surround them. That's really the grace that we're finding. Now, Noah not only received grace, but he was, he was showering grace. Think about this. I want you to think about this. By faith, he builds an ark. And you think, okay, he's obeying God, but he's doing more than that. It says he condemned the world at that time. You know, every time he ran down the Home Depot for more lumber, people were like, what's this guy doing? You know, Peter says he preached. He was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for 100 years. 100 years. This is God's mercy and grace. God didn't just judge the world. They watched every day as an ark was built. They saw the means of safety. They saw the means of escape. Every hammer, every chisel was a testimony to what God was about to do. The Bible says God never does anything before he tells his prophets. Noah was prophetic. Noah showed the world then that judgment was coming. I think for the last 50 years, God's been building an ark. There's been more teaching on prophecy in the last 50 years than the whole history of the church. So much so that almost everybody's heard of a rapture now. And with communications as they are, Everybody's almost heard the gospel. God's building an ark. And one day he's going to shut it down. Chapter 8, the rain comes. Um, Noah and his family spared. God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then it says God made a covenant with Noah. Look at verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 21. God said, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living creature. Now watch this, verse 22. While the earth remains, and we know it's still reserved for judgment, but while it remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, underline this, shall not cease. Now why does God say this to Noah? By the way, first time the word covenant appears. A covenant is a contract between two people, and the way God makes contracts are great. It's all on him. God makes a covenant with Noah for this reason and this reason only. It had never rained before. And Noah's going through this unbelievable experience, months on this ark with smelly animals and a dysfunctional family, and now they're on dry land. And God's kind of helping Noah out here because you know, think about the next time Noah would hear a pitter-patter of rain, <laughs> right? Think about you guys, how wigged out you get if it's going to rain, right? Can't even come to church, it might rain. Uh, so he's going to think God's going to flood the earth again. Now, for the climate change extremists, and by the way, I think Christians should take care of the world better than anybody as our father's world. But for the climate change extremists, 
Until the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. There'll be cold in winter. Um, God has the world reserved for judgment. Now, this is really cool. The sign of the covenant, chapter 9, verse 12. And God said this, the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature for perpetual generations, I will set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, the rainbow shall be seen. Like almost everything we're studying in Genesis, scientists are kind of perplexed by rainbows. You can read about it. They're, they're phenomenons, actually. Uh, just like the language and marriage, there's, people really have no, no understanding of why they're there or origins. The rainbow becomes significant in this. Uh, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Revelation 4, there's a rainbow around the throne of God. Remember God said he would look at the rainbow? But the Hebrew word for rainbow here is the same word for a hunter's bow or a warrior's bow. In effect, God said, Noah, I'm going to hang up my bow. I will never judge the earth. I will never be a warrior again. And you see the way the rainbows point it, the bow? The arrow goes back to God, not to man. God said the next time an arrow flies, it'll be through me. And that's the person of Jesus Christ who was a man of sorrows and griefs and took on our suffering and our shame. Everything points to Jesus. Now, the flood's over and it proves that the sin problem's not over. Um, Noah comes out of the ark, he gets drunk. I would have gotten drunk too if I had to go through that ordeal. Um, Ham disrespects his father. Some people think there's sexual implications there. Noah curses him. Can anybody say dysfunctional family? And Noah's the most righteous man in the earth. So here we go again. And the flood is proof that even though God wiped everything out, sin is still in the heart of man. Real quick, with the few minutes we have remaining, chapter 11 says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Came to pass, they journeyed from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, or modern-day Iraq, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they have brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. That's where all the oil is, by the way. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower into the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Here we go again. The hubris of mankind. Lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, look at this wordplay here. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower they built. So man's like, oh, we're going to build a tower into the heavens. Now, they weren't building skyscrapers. Uh, you've seen ziggurats before. These are astrological towers. In other words, we don't need God. We can divinely make a way for ourselves. They built this tower. Man's ingenuity. God says, uh, let me come down and see what that little tower looks like, that little molehill down there. See the hubris of man, how stupid it is? God comes down. God changes the languages. Nobody knows why we have different languages. God changes the language. Listen, lest they destroy themselves. This is the beginning of using technology to ultimately destroy ourselves. You know, almost everything we have in the world was designed for we live today in an age of nuclear proliferation. 
I read an essay one time, there's enough nuclear warheads out there that if we fired them all off, every country at the same time, we change the rotation of the earth. It is only the grace of God and the restraining power of the Holy Spirit while there, why there hasn't been a nuclear exchange already. Man's never built a weapon he's not used. And God knows we would wipe each other out. God confuses the languages. Now, the story doesn't end on a down note. Next week in chapter 11, God will choose one man named Abraham. And God will start again and he'll make a promise and a vision to Abraham that comes to our day that Abraham, out of you will come many peoples and a nation that will bless the entire earth. We are the recipients of that. We, you know, Father Abraham, we are descendants of Father Abraham, the gift of the Jews, the, the things that we know and love about God. God will start over again and bring man back into community. One other thing about the Tower of Babel, anybody remember where Babel gets reversed? Anybody? The day of Pentecost, right? They're all in one accord, 120 people in upper room. And if you read in Acts there, it gives you really a table of nations. And it says, when the Holy Spirit came, they spoke in other tongues, and every man heard them in his own language. God reversed Babel, and God built a new community, which we are part of. This is what God does. The warning of these few chapters is simple. Sin is a clear and present danger to all of us, every one of us. You know that from the New Testament, now you see the picture in the Old Testament, the havoc it can wreak in our lives. And the problem with sin is this. There's kind of a near and a far. God said, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. But they sinned and they didn't die. That's the problem with sin. You know, that's the problem when somebody has an affair. They're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. This feels good. This is, wow, stolen water, sweet. There's no judge. I'm getting away with it. And then one day, the house of cards falls down. Jesus talked about the house built on sand and the house built on stone in the end James says it brings forth death there is a God who offers grace his unmerited favor and listen we're not only saved by grace I think it's in Titus where Paul says the grace of God has appeared to all men teaching us to be sober and righteous in every generation, in a wicked generation that might be like Noah's day, you and I can take a hammer and a Bible and grace can teach us how to live and how to witness to a world that has no idea judgment is the next thing on God's calendar. The doors of the ark are still open. We just got to convince people to come in.